This is Friends and Benefits, a podcast hosted by Reward Strategies editor Amber Ainsley Pritchard, and you may have guessed it, her Friends and Benefits. Stay tuned to find out what's hot, what's not, and what's happening in the world of pay and reward. Hi everyone, it's Amber Ainsley Pritchard, editor of Reward Strategy, and I'm coming to you with the first episode of 2021, Better Late Than Ever. Joining me today is Sam Westwood, Head of People at The White Company. I'm sure many of you will know The White Company. It is a luxury homeware brand, one which I've been browsing this morning for the sake of the podcast and because I like it. So Sam, how are you and how is it going at The White Company? I'm very good, thank you. And before you ask, no, I can't get you any discount, I'm afraid. (laughs) Oh, that is a pity. You'd have hoped, but oh well. I'll manage. And just to let you and the listeners know, I've recently moved house and I'm still working from home. So apologies in advance for any noises or disruptions. They're a very loud doorbell for some reason. It's quite fun though. So if you hear it, that'll be enjoyable. (laughs) So now that that's said, we can get stuck in and find out why you wanted to work in HR and the people profession, Sam. Um, I think people always ask me this. um, Lots of people, I think, tend to fall into the profession um, after doing something prior but I think I suppose I I took an unusual route in that I did my undergraduate degree in HR Um, so it's quite hard for me to pinpoint at age sort of 17 when I was filling out my university applications actually what it was that made me want to get into HR I think it's a bit of an unusual thing for a 17 year old to to want to do Um, but I suppose I'd really enjoyed uh, studying business um, as part of my further education and wanted to take that further and specialise. And I think for me, the the people side of things, the HR side of things, was the most unexplored, really untapped, I suppose, as a discipline. I found that sort of prospect of it quite exciting. Um, You know, the fact that it's not science, it's not really an art, somewhere in between, that really excited me. And I suppose I've never really looked back from there. So yeah, that's 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 how I got to kind of get into it. (laughs) I mean, that's amazing. No one does seem to take an actual route into it. Like you say, they tend to fall into it, into HR and, you know, the people profession. So that's amazing. I don't even think I knew HR existed at age 17. So (laughs) (laughs) one of those, isn't it? But yeah, that's amazing. And so the majority of your roles, let me say that again, the majority of your roles have been in retail hospitality, including McDonald's, Topman. Would you say there are any specific quirks of working in the people function in these sectors? Yeah, I think so. That's a that's a fantastic question, actually, because um, I think, yeah, like the retail and hospitality sort of sector definitely has its idiosyncrasies, if you like. Um, I think I could definitely tell you about some of the stories around the ER cases in particular that I've dealt with over the years. I think not necessarily at, at the white company, but I think in, in the sector uh, generally, there's a lot of students. Um, so not to stereotype, but I think motivations for work can be slightly different for sort of a part-time mm-hmm. student than someone that's working in in retail or hospitality kind of full-time as a, as a career. Um, so I think behavior can slightly be different uh, from those groups of people, uh, which can result in a number of quite amusing ER cases um, over, over, over the years. But I think just generally the sector, you know, it's very fast paced. So there's lots of um, kind of reactivity kind of needed to, to kind of react to things. You know, just the fact that all of the sites are open, you know, over the weekends, they don't sort of, um, go to a traditional working week presents its kind of challenges from an HR perspective, making sure that, 
you know the managers feel supported over those times that you're not necessarily kind of at your at your desk or or around this is kind of always on uh, kind of mentality that needs to be approached to it i think generally speaking they're very commercial because uh, it is all about kind of um you know transaction and, and kind of bottom line and, and and value creation from that perspective which makes the roles quite operational i think um um a lot um i think the fact that generally speaking you're working across multi-sites um so you don't just have one or two locations you've got you know at mcdonald's it was 1200 locations so how do you create community how do you create culture that's sort of got a thread of consistency that that runs through through that and generally speaking you tend to find these organizations are quite large so they have large numbers of people that you're kind of dealing with um so yeah i think there's definite quirks um and, and differences and nuance that needs to be applied to, to hospitality and retail and I think they're two of the sectors which were, you know, hit worse over the pandemic as well. So I'm sure we're going to come on to that a little bit later. But looking at your role specifically at the White Company, what does your day to day look like? What are your duties? What are you up to? Is it always the same or is every day different? Yeah, it's probably a very cliched answer. But I think if you ask any head of people or head of HR, um, I'm sure they would have a fairly consistent one, which is there's not really a typical day. Um, I think the role by very nature is is broad, um, which means depending on what's going on, my focus can be drawn into all sorts of different directions. Um, I think typically you've got the reactive stuff, um, which is your kind of ER, your business partnership, lots and lots of conversations in terms of coaching and just support and guidance generally to, to kind of managers and, and kind of leadership in the business. Um, and then there's the really proactive stuff, which is the projects and the initiatives that you're supporting with a change agenda across the business, and trying to make it the best place to work. So I think for me, the trick is trying to balance that um, and actually have more of the proactive than the reactive, um, because that's the kind of exciting stuff that that really is going to lead to change and um, kind of move the move the agenda forward. I was going to say that sort of work must be the more exciting and more interesting projects to take on yeah having said that the conversations generally on the day-to-day really do um kind of get me ticking as well because i think if you can have a conversation with someone then walk away knowing that you've you know helped support them or kind of change their mind on something i think those can be really rewarding as well as the kind of more bigger bigger ticket items so to speak of course well it is people profession so dealing with people you know day-to-day like that as well it must be fulfilling and what does your team look like and who do you report into? So I have a fantastic team, I think is the first thing to say. So if any of them are going to listen to this, thank you very much. I do appreciate all of your support. So I have a team of approximately 20 people. Um, they're split across four, four broad areas of, of discipline. So first of all, we've got people partnership. Um, so those are the generalist roles. Um, they range from kind of um, employee relations through to organizational design, bits of reward, general business partnership. Those are the business facing roles that are aligned to each of our business areas. And yeah, kind of take those kind of business facing conversations, etc. We then have um, the recruitment guys or talent acquisition. Um, again, those align aligned to different business areas. And then I have my payroll team. 
uh, so look after payroll as well. Um, I, I knew very little about payroll before starting with the white company. Um, it's been a huge learning curve for me to, to get under the skin of what those guys do. Uh, and I'm hugely grateful for all of their uh, patience with me. That's what I've learned. And then um, I have a project manager also, um, which is a new role that we're lucky enough to put in this year, which has been an absolute godsend in terms of managing all of our people projects across the team and ensuring that we are delivering against the promises that we've set out against our people strategy. So I report through to our people director, who sits on our operating board. And then I have a peer who's our head of people engagement, who looks after internal communications and other engagement initiatives as well as our kind of well-being program and importantly our kind of office services team as well so we're looking after the whole employee experience from all of the life cycle touch points but also the environment in which they're operating which is just so important to how people perceive and see their experience at work so combining that within the function um, has actually made a real world difference for us. So it sounds like you've got the whole of like the you know you've got HR, payroll, reward all within the people profession oh and recruitment not people profession under your sort of um, well just all under you you've got to look after them all <laughs> because I find that in all different sorts of employers and companies there's maybe the reward function and they sit you know under HR but they look after payroll or everyone sits separately like it's just so different at all companies and another thing I've noticed is that not that many companies have a proper internal communications or marketing sort of department which is sharing the well-being policy and the benefits and the rewards on offer which I think is so important because employees just don't know they're there otherwise. Yeah I think with the white company we're kind of lucky enough to be small enough that we can take control of all of these things and therefore we can have a really integrated and joined up approach to how all of those things interact with each other. And we are lucky enough to have invested in some of the important things around internal comms. And we have a a whole team that um, kind of focuses on that because particularly across multi-site, like I mentioned earlier, it's so important to get that communication right so that we have a consistency to it so that we're not kind of neglecting that. So yeah, we are blessed actually having that structure and and that area, that level of focus actually. Yeah, I mean, it sounds fantastic that it is also joined up. I think so many companies are striving for that at the moment, but you guys are there already. So well done. And how many people do you serve at the White Company? What is the employee count in total, including sort of all retail staff, office-based staff? Yeah, so typically it's about 1,500. Um, so quite a nice number. I think, though, we are a very seasonal brand. So if you think White Company, you almost always think Christmas. Um, so a lot of our trade comes over the Christmas peak. So we have to scale up massively. So our teams grow. And we added just over a thousand colleagues, I think, um, over peak this this year. So almost doubling headcount, which are, you know you can you can kind of see in itself presents huge people and operational challenges. Yep. And is that for just retail alone, like shop workers, or do you upscale in the people team too? Yeah, it would have been a lot more actually if retail was operating at full capacity kind of this year. But actually, the majority of them come in the distribution centre where we kind of scale up deliveries massively. Yeah, but if the if the stores have been open um, at their full capacity, um, we'd have seen that number even even higher. So yeah, we do have to scale up some support roles in order to deal with that um, to ensure that you know just getting contracts and starter paperwork out to people etc is a in itself a challenge so yeah we, we make sure that we kind of do it in a in, in the right way so that everyone feels supported 
Yeah, I'm not sure I could have forgotten that, you know, COVID was still going on at Christmas time. <laughs> I don't know how I did any Christmas shopping if I can't even remember that. I think we've just tried to all block it out of our memories, haven't we? Yeah, well, I certainly have. <laughs> so we're just going to have a quick ad break before we get stuck into what's been going on in the world. So we'll be back in a moment. It's me again, Ben Miller, the Commercial Director for Reward Strategy, and I wanted to alert you to the fact that the Payroll and Reward Conference is nearly here. In 2020, the event was postponed due to the pandemic, but it's back again at its usual time of year, June, so we can discuss tax year changes, budget updates, and annual pay reviews whilst they're still fresh in your mind. On June 22nd and 23rd, the Payroll and Reward Conference will take place at a fantastic London TV studio. Check out the Reward Strategy website for up-to-date agendas and reach out to me if you're interested in speaking, sponsoring or attending. Find my details on this podcast or look me up on LinkedIn. I look forward to catching up soon, but for now, I'll get you back to listening to Amber and her friend in benefits. Okay, we're back from that sweet but short little break, Sam. And I now want to speak to you about the pandemic again, just as we had, because we're currently at the end of March and we've just, I want to say celebrated, but no, we've just marked the first anniversary of the first COVID lockdown. So we've had a year of working from home. And I want to find out for your office-based employees, did you have a flexible working policy prior to the pandemic or just since, you know, last March? That's a really good question. It's a very hot topic, I think, not just at the white company, but in the industry as a as a whole. So we had for the office teams, like what we called our core hours policy in place, um, which allowed people to sort of flex the start and end times of their day to make that fit in with them. So if they had a doctor's appointment or they needed to go and pick the kids up or whatever that might be, they could, they could flex their day around their, um, their, their kind of personal lives as well. Obviously, since we uh, deployed the whole office to working from home, uh, we've been doing a lot of soul searching and asking questions that, you know, actually that there's a lot of benefits that kind of come come out of this. And actually, is this something that can continue in our new normal and our new um, kind of ways of working? And I think that although there are, we've struggled as a brand with certain things, um, you know, we're very sensory as a brand. So product development has been quite difficult from home because you need to be able to smell that fragrance or feel that towel or fit that dress on a, on a live model in order to make sure the fit's right. We've actually seen that there's real benefits from just having focused time, not having the commute, Meetings have become probably like more um, focused, um, and so the the timings can be more efficient on certain things. So we're actually going to be moving to trialing a three day working week in the office uh, come June, when we're all hopefully, fingers crossed, allowed to sort of um, get back to the office. Because we see the benefit of collaboration and getting heads together on stuff, we're actually going to have set days. So. Mondays and Fridays will say are working from home and Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays will be in the office. And we're going to trial that for six months to see if it, it works and fits into our new normal. And I think everyone's hoping uh, that we can make a success of it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what most people are planning on doing. I think it's what we're going to even end up doing at our company. And I'm quite happy with that, really. It's not necessarily a long weekend because you'll be working Monday to Friday, but, you know, it's less effort getting out public transport, doing your hair and makeup, or for me anyway. <laughs> I think it just gives you a little bit more flexibility to make it fit better. And I think especially a lot of people with longer commutes, it's an absolute godsend to not have to sort of um, commute for over two hours, three hours a day 
like you know wasted time getting into the office but whilst also recognizing that there's some real benefit of getting together um, in terms of things like creativity learning and development induction etc um so trying to just find that balance mm-hmm. it definitely brings up the argument of you know people that do live further away or live in London are going to be working from home you know for two days a week does that then change what they're going to be paid going forward it's something I recently spoke about um with the deputy head of reward at the Ministry of Defence that's in the next issue of reward strategy and they pay London waiting for London-based roles and if people are going to be working away from London or away from the office and at home they're definitely going to start looking at you know how to change their pay policies and rewards so I think that's going to be a big focus for companies going forward too maybe not this year but maybe next yeah I think it's a really interesting one because typically it's been based on where the uh, role has been based not necessarily where you've lived so you could commute into London and still get London waiting but still benefit from uh, maybe cheaper kind of living costs elsewhere so this will really turn it on its head Um, so it'll be interesting to see how companies react to that and um, set pay policy accordingly Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah we're kind of watching that space as well yeah don't want to make any drastic changes just yet because obviously there's so many other challenges at the moment and I think a big one has been culture and engagement while we've been having employees work from home and how you sort of like you know build up that feeling of uh, community and keeping employees motivated have you guys you know done anything specific around that to try and keep employees you know feeling the love yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, as I mentioned, there's real trades off, trade-offs between um, having people work from home and um, kind of in the office. Uh, one of the big trade-offs is how do you create the sense of community, the sense of culture? So we've been doing lots of things around kind of enhancing communication around our like well-being program, for example. So we have a weekly update, our wellness series, we call it, which kind of goes out to everyone which will focus on a different pillar of our wellbeing program each week. So one time it might be around um, kind of our move pillar, which is around sort of physical activity um, and uh, getting involved with that. Uh, And then we've had some more around our restore pillar, which is around kind of your mental health and um, how you're looking after that side of things. So um, we've done some stuff like that. Over Christmas, for example, we sent out activity kits that people could kind of get involved, decorate baubles do Christmas cards we've run various competitions like Instagram competitions of how to who, who can create the best Christmas wreath that sort of thing just to kind of get that sense of community going people sharing their um uh, creations and and kind of keep keep that um kind of community and sort of sense of sense of spirit alive and I just think communications have just been ramped up generally from um centrally um to make sure that everyone feels connected um so we've made use of uh, tech around Microsoft Teams and kind of doing digital town halls um to make sure everyone's got kind of information and I know there's been loads of local initiatives that other teams have um, kind of got involved with and, and do in terms of things like kind of cocktail Fridays, fizzy Fridays, uh, those sorts of things, just to have a bit of a, a, a chat and a, an unwind at the end of the week as well. Yeah, I think the fun element is the bit employees miss most, whether it's going to the pub on a Friday or for dinner with like some of your team. I can definitely see a good thing for the white company is I may be sending out some waffle robes and slippers and having a spa night on Zoom. If you haven't done that already, I think that would be great. Not that I'm allowed to be involved, but you know. (laughs) That is a great suggestion. I will certainly float it. (laughs) 
So another thing about flexible working, which is, you know, another positive in a way, is that it can support diversity and inclusion better because you can hire from a wider talent pool. Because if people are going to be working from home more often, you could hire some disabled workers who don't like to commute as much or can't commute as much. Or you could hire carers who work, you know, different hours within those responsibilities. So I wondered what your thoughts were on this. Yeah, I think it's a really kind of important uh, point. Uh, I, I, I just don't think you can argue with that sentiment in that flexibility um, essentially widens participation in your potential workforce, either directly or indirectly. So some of the examples that you've given there and, you know, add to that people with kind of childcare responsibilities or, you know, even kind of religious commitments or kind of other commitments that might not necessarily be able to sort of attend um, kind of a, a traditional shift pattern. And I think, you know, it easily then adds up to the fact that you're just going to have a bigger workforce that you're potentially attracting from, which ultimately will be more diverse. And, you know, we don't need to talk about the sort of business case for diversity inclusion. You know, that was proved, you know, quite some time ago. So ultimately, you know, the the flexibility will lead to, um, you know, a better business performance as a result of um, you know attracting more diverse candidates I'm sure of it yeah I'm thinking maybe this time next year we'll do some reports or surveys and hopefully those rates will be much better with having a more diverse workforce with thanks to furlough and the pandemic and flexible working and another thing which flexible working has been great for is obviously well in some cases well-being and the work-life balance And I've been focusing on other well-being approaches and strategies going forward. And there's been a lot of focus on ESG policies and sort of green strategies being really important, especially for younger generations coming into the workforce. They want a social purpose and they say that serves their well-being. So that should be part of a well-being strategy in the workplace. So I think that's being picked up more and more by reward and people professionals. And I wondered, you know, what is the white company doing in this space? Do you have any green policies? Do you have any sort of social corporate responsibility like strategies? Yeah, I think it it is a really interesting one. And I think it's becoming more and more important to um, kind of particularly kind of younger and newer generations as they're coming through. And it's one of the things that they look for out of a business in terms of um, that they're doing the right thing in this space as being an attractive employer. So um, we have a CSR team um, that look after our um, kind of corporate social responsibilities. Predominantly, their focus tends to be on our supply chain, making sure because we source from all all over the globe um, and from multiple different suppliers and different factories that our third party suppliers are complying with our codes of conduct around ethics and making sure that our supply chains are free from forced labor or modern slavery, making sure that workers have good conditions, making sure that the, the, the kind of materials that we use are sustainable and ethical. And there's certain standards that we've kind of you know signed up for. Good cashmere standard is, is one. We're growing the use of organic cotton, things like that. And then more in the people space is something that we've been focused on as well. So we've got a a big piece on kind of charity and and how we're kind of being represented in our kind of local communities. So we have good charity partners. We introduce a volunteering day for all of our kind of teams. They get a paid day off to volunteer for a chosen charity, which has gone down really well. And we love to hear the stories of what people have done with that day. We've really focused on modern slavery, particularly in our um, higher risk areas uh, to make sure that we've got kind of policy proce- procedure um, in place to ensure that there's no risk of that occurring um, within, our, within our workforce. 
Uh, more recently, I suppose there's been more emphasis on the diversity and inclusion side of, of things, uh, which I think has a real kind of CSR benefit to it as well. And, and equally just the well-being of our own people um, to make sure, I think that's a huge CSR issue around, you know, how are we making sure that our people are supported and their well-being is supported and, you know, that they can live more, you know, holistically happier lives, I suppose, as a result of their their employment with the white company. So yeah, there's a lot going on in this space and I, I can only predict it kind of um, becoming more and more as we um, as we kind of progress over the next few years. Yeah, I definitely think the wellbeing um, strategy is so important. I think so many employees just, you know, tick box, we've sent an email about wellbeing and we have an EAP, but there needs to be so much more done than just that. So it's fantastic you guys are really focusing on that element. Is there anything else which you think is going to become increasingly important for people professionals going forward, like different strategies other than well-being and green policies? Yeah, it's, I think this is a, a again, a, a, we're at a turning point, I think, to an extent. The last 12 months have given us a real ability um, and a gift almost to reflect on, you know, what are going to be the next things that we need to focus on. So I think Certainly leadership is going to be a really key area. I think if we look at how the business, not just the white company, but across the whole industry, businesses turned towards HR for answers during the pandemic and a real kind of need to sort of lead the way on a lot of um, a lot of areas. So I think if we weren't at the top table before the pandemic from an HR perspective in our in our ability to influence lead, uh, you know, uh, business strategy and leadership, we certainly are now. Um, and I think there's a real opportunity to use that for the kind of greater good for, from an organizational perspective. So I think leadership in HR is going to be increasingly more important in terms of how we can portray business expertise as well as people expertise. I think technology, the use of technology, I mean, you just look at, you know, the, the way that we're recording this podcast or, you know, the multiple Zoom meetings that you have with kind of friends and family um, kind of these days, which just wasn't happening a year ago. And I think the impact of people's use of tech kind of then expectations of their employer in terms of what their tech experience should be at work shifts as a result of their kind of consumer experience. So I think HR teams, people functions need to be embracing the use of tech and how we can utilize that to increase and enhance the employee experience. And I think culture, we've touched on that, the importance of community within um, any business, particularly if you've got remote working as a a new way of norm, um, the, the new normal. It is going to be hugely important in terms of how you can create that commonality, that shared sense of uh, values and, and kind of culture. So how is that? How is that done? I think finally, the last one for me is sort of empathy. There's been a lot of people that have gone through a lot of stuff over the last 12 months. And just having that ability to empathize, and put yourself in someone's shoes, this idea of um, procedural justice um, and making sure that people feel that they've been listened to and, and kind of dealt with in a fair way, I think is just becoming more and more important um, in terms of how we run the function and how we run our businesses. So yeah, I think probably if I was a betting man, those would be my four areas that I think um, I can see emerging further from uh, from the last 12 months. Yeah, I would definitely agree. And I would say those soft skills and being able to put yourself in people's shoes and just understand them and just try and be open, honest and understanding is so important always, especially obviously in these scenarios during lockdown. But yeah, people need to be people. 
So I think that will definitely come through in the next year, or I hope so anyway. I have another question now where we're coming to the end of our podcast. So I wanted to ask you this because it's about HR and the people profession, because obviously sometimes they're interchangeable, sometimes they're not. People have different definitions. But in the next issue of the magazine, we have a piece which is basically saying traditional HR is debt. They're saying that, you know, it's traditional HR is not strategic enough and that employees shouldn't be seen as resources. So that really shouldn't be in the title. I wondered what your thoughts were on this because you've, you know, you've had traditional HR titles, now you're head of people. What would you say? Yeah, I think it's not a new argument, is it really? It's been there since the emergence of um, the HR terminologies probably in the 80s or or so. And there's been a lot of criticism around the use of resource. I think you've got traditionally, you've got the hard view of HR, which advocates that, you know, to be taken seriously as a function, you need to be seen to add value. The way to do that is to manage people as a resource and they're, um, you know, interchangeable, etc. And then you've got the softer view, which is that, you know, they're people, they've got thoughts and feelings and emotions and you know the only way you're actually going to get them to deliver value for an organization is to treat them as such um, and to treat them like kind of with respect etc I think that I've always tended to to um, lean towards that softer view Um, you know being a person myself I know that you know the best (laughs) way to get stuff out of me is to treat me with um, you know the dignity and respect that I deserve Um, but I think the kind of the HR to people kind of argument is um you know it's topical it's relevant but ultimately I think um it it's a little bit um kind of misdirected in in the fact that actually it's the activities that the function performs and the way it goes about them that's important rather the way that that it's termed so I think you know as long as you can be confident that you are um as a function aligned to the overall objectives of the business and you're make you're influencing leaders to make people-centered business decisions for the value of the the business and for its people and and to achieve that ultimate ultimate purpose of the organization you know you're going to be winning um, as a function rather than just being seen as a kind of transactional function that just sort of does contracts and disciplinaries etc so yeah I think it's a it's more to what you're doing as opposed to kind of what you're calling it Mm -hmm. yeah you're completely right it's about the actions you can't just change the name either to be the people function and then carry on as you were before so no that's very true before we wrap up this episode I wanted to find out what you'd be doing if you weren't in the people profession maybe go back to age 16 because clearly you wanted to be in HR from age 17 so <laughs> what was happening before then yeah I suppose I just have to look at what what did I want to be was when I was a kid um yeah. and so um I think the obvious um, were around I wanted to sort of be a, a, a pilot I think Ooh. so I don't know if I would be doing that now my spatial awareness and my um <laughs> Uh, you know hand-eye coordination isn't the best Um, uh, but I think that was always something I aspired to I think actually looking at it in terms of what would I actually be doing I think for me I've always been fascinated by numbers and kind of data so I'd probably be doing something around analytics and kind of insight because I get very obsessed and kind of fanboy around kind of strategy functions and kind of insight functions because I just think this is so cool some of the stuff that they they do and kind of come out with so I would like to think um, I'd be able to turn my hands towards something like that um, if I wasn't doing um, kind of HR and people. Amazing. I love it. I've not had pilot before either <laughs> as well. So there we go. I'm enjoying it. Now. I just can't wait to be on a plane myself as long as I'm not flying it though. Or you're flying it. Yeah, I've, I, yeah it wouldn't be good if I was flying it. 
<laughs> well, that's all we have time for, Sam. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been lovely to catch up and hear more about what the White Company has been doing. I hope you enjoyed it too. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Amazing. Well, that's all from me. I'll be back with another of my friends and benefits soon. But don't forget to keep an eye out for the latest issue of Reward Strategy, issue 228, where I profile Tim Henrietti, Deputy Head of Reward at the Ministry of Defence. Stay safe and we'll speak soon. Thank you.